Okay, I know what you're all expecting, which is for me to say something about the Eagles, and I'm not going to do that all the way until the end of the sermon, then I will, so you can hang tight for that. Most of the week, I sounded minus the profanity like Jason Kelsey behind a mic, and so if I lose my voice at some point during this, you'll have to forgive me and understand why. We start a brand new sermon series this week in the biblical book of Acts. Our plan is to spend a few months considering this book together, take a break over the summer, and then pick it up again in the fall. And if you were to ask us why in this season did we choose the book of Acts, there'd be several reasons, one of them being this, because of the season that we find ourselves in as a church plant. We talked through and presented last fall a a three-year vision in which we're saying as we get to be eight and nine years old, as we transition from baby church plant to church, we don't want to just go from church plant to church. We want to go from church plant to church planting church. And so we want to give ourselves to seeing the gospel advance and disciples made and churches birthed. And we want to give ourselves to seeing that happen locally in our region and nationally across the country and globally and internationally across the world. And for us then, the book of Acts, in which you see that same exact thing happen, seemed to be a great fit. And so our prayer is that God would coincide what we're prayerfully pursuing and this book in this season together. My aim then this morning is very simple. It's just to introduce you to this book, to get your feet wet in it as you get ready to read it together on your own in GCM, our smaller communities, on Sundays from here. And to do that, I'm going to steal something I heard from Pastor Matt Cruz up in Boston. He said that when you grab a book, you generally tend to look at a few things, maybe even three things of a book that you'll consider. So for example, if you grab a book off the shelf at Barnes & Noble, there might be three places you immediately go. First, you might go to the back cover, right? So I grabbed a book. You'll go to the back cover so that you can open up here and you'll see a picture of someone and that's the author page. And you do that so that you can know who wrote this book and what this person's background is and what their credentials are so that you can determine whether or not you want to read this book. If I grab a book and I open to the back cover and I see a picture of Jerry Jones, what am I doing? I'm putting that book down. That is not worth my time, right? But I grab this book off the shelf upstairs. There's a smiling picture of Tim Keller. What am I going to do? I'm going to sit down and I'm going to read this book because I understand something of who wrote the book. The other place you might go when you grab a book is you might open to the first pages, to the introduction. And you read the introduction so that you can know why did the guy on that back cover write this book? Why? What am I supposed to understand when I read this? What's the purpose or the reason for this book existing? And then after that, I might also turn to the table of contents. And what am I going to find there? I'm going to find the what. What is this book about and where is it headed? What can I expect on this journey as I travel through these chapters? The who and the why and the what. That's what I want to do with us this morning in the book of Acts. We want to consider who wrote Acts and why was Acts written and what is Acts about. So let me pray and we'll consider those things together as we get ready to read this book called Acts together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us the book of Acts. We pray with desperate need and with bold expectation 
that the same Holy Spirit who inspired this book will now bring light to our eyes to see it and heat to our heart to feel it. We pray that in the weeks to come that this print might jump off the page and transform us to be a spirit-empowered people on the move for the advance of the gospel because Jesus is alive and well and help us through the study of this book to be more and more certain of that than we've ever been before. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, back cover, picture. Who wrote the book of Acts? Who's the author? Acts starts this way. In 1 verse 1, you can read it with me. It says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with. Now, who's the I? What do we learn from this first verse itself? We, we learn that this is this author's second book. Do you catch that? Because he starts it by referencing his former book, his first book. So the author of this has an earlier book. And in that earlier book, he covered all that Jesus had done and taught until Jesus had been taken up. That is, ascended into heaven. So whoever wrote Acts has an earlier work that covered all that Jesus did before he ascended up to heaven. If you turned left in your Bible from Acts and you went back past John, you would get to Luke. And in Luke 1, you would hear a very similar introduction. You'd hear the same name, Most Excellent Theophilus. And you'd learn that the book that we call the Gospel according to Luke and the book that we call Acts were both written by the same man, a man named Luke. So you're on that back cover, you see Luke's picture, and now you start going, okay, who is this author? Who is Luke? Here's what we know. We know that Luke was a companion of the Apostle Paul. He was a co-laborer with Paul. He was on Paul's missionary team. In fact, as you read through the book of Acts, you're going to see that most of the book is written sort of in the third person, right? He went here, and they did this, and Peter said that, and Paul did this. And then when you get to Acts 16, you're going to notice a switch. Because all of a sudden, you're going to see these passages that go, and then we set sail, and then we traveled to that city, and then we did this, and saw that, and heard this. Because Luke is inserting himself to let you know, I got to be with Paul on some of these journeys. I traveled with him, did ministry with him. Paul and Luke were co-laborers, co-ministers, teammates in the mission for Jesus Christ. Paul is, Luke is one of Paul's companions. In fact, he is so all the way to the end almost of Paul's life. For example, if you read 2 Timothy, there's this passage where Paul is sort of winding down his life. He says something like, I have fought the good fight. And I've finished the race. I've kept the course. Now there's a crown waiting for me. I'm being poured out like a drink offering. He's getting ready to die. And as he does so, he says, nobody's here with me. And then in 2 Timothy 4, he says, only Luke is with me. Did you get that? Only Luke is with me. A companion of Paul's, not just through some of his journeys in the book of Acts, but when Paul is getting done with his life, ready to meet Jesus, only Luke is with me. We also learn from the Apostle Paul something else about Luke. If you read the book of Colossians, which we did some time ago as a church, 
when Paul is wrapping up his letter to the Colossian church, he ends in chapter 4 with a number of greetings, and when he does, he says, so-and-so greets you, and -and so-and-so greets you, and then in Colossians 4, hear this, he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you. So what do we learn? We learn that Luke is not just Luke. Luke is Dr. Luke. He's a medical doctor. He's a physician. In the words of Goodwill Hunting, then, that means our boy is wicked smart, right? He's intelligent and learned and cultured and educated. And in fact, as you read Luke and Acts, you'll see that jumping out at you. For example, the way that Luke begins his introduction is the way that other classical Greek historians began their histories. So that means this guy had read some books, some thick books, and made sure that his introduction matched those of classical Greek historians so that the Christian history would be elevated on the level of all the other classics with all the other Greek historians. Do you get this? Luke then is a physician, a medical doctor, who in his spare time, in his spare time, moonlights as a world-class historian. At the same time, he's not just a nerd, he's likable. Did you get that? In Colossians, our beloved Luke greets you, the physician. Right? In another translation, our dear friend Luke, the physician, greets you. So this brother is smart and intelligent and learned. At the same time, he's godly and likable. When I think of Luke... I think of my brother-in-law, Winston, right? Many of you know Winston. Do you know that Winston got a PhD in biomedical engineering? Whatever that is. I cannot even spell that. And after he got his PhD in biomedical engineering, which you wouldn't know because he's humble and godly and likable, after he got that, that wasn't enough. So in his spare time, he went on to then pursue medicine and became a medical doctor. And then, if that were not enough, as if that weren't enough, he's likable, and he's athletic, and he's handy. Do you know how hard it is to be Winston's brother-in-law? He's so likable, I hate the guy, right? Because, let me tell you, in our family, we know if the sink is broken, you call Winston. If a bone is broken, you call Winston. If you need someone to say grace before a meal, you call a J, right? That's essentially, he's a pastor, he can pray before we eat. That's what I'm good for in the family, right? Dr. Luke, do you get him? He is a missionary, doctor, world-class historian, theologian, and wearing all those hats at the same time, we get these two volumes. Luke Acts, 25% of the New Testament of your Bibles, more than anyone else, a carefully investigated, thoroughly researched, meticulously examined account of 60 of the most important years on the planet. 30 years in the book of Luke, covering from when Jesus Christ was born until he ascended into heaven. 30 years or so in the book of Acts, covering from when Jesus Christ ascended to the spread of the Christian church. A thoroughly examined, meticulously researched, carefully investigated history. And I want you to know, those aren't throwaway terms. That's exactly what it was, carefully researched. Luke says as much. Listen to what he says in Luke 1, verse 3. In the introduction to Luke, he says, It seemed good to me also, notice this, having followed all things closely 
for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. See, Luke's concern is not, does Christianity work for you? In our day, people decide on something going, if it works for you, do it. The question is, does it work for you? You've got to do what works for you. Luke has no concern about whether Christianity works for you. Luke's concern is, is it true? If it's true, believe it with all your heart. If it's not, who cares? And historians throughout the ages have been won over by the historicity and accuracy and reliability of Luke's accounts. I won't, for the sake of time, tell you now, but there was a Scottish scholar named Ramsey, William Ramsey. He was a professor at Oxford University. He studied that region of the world in which the Bible began in, in, in Acts, those stories. He said that he read the book of Acts expecting, quote, to gain nothing from this book. He figured that the book of Acts, like many of his scholars and peers of the day, was written by someone far later, not 30 years after Jesus, but maybe 80 to 100 years after the fact, he, quote, said it was written as probably an author who wanted to influence people's minds with a highly imaginative, fabricated account of the early church. What was William Ramsey saying? He's saying, look, what you have in the book of Acts is legend. It's myth. It's made up. That's how he approached the book. And yet, after studying, this skeptic turned, which you'll see in a moment is what Luke's account is all about, the skeptic turned, so much so that William Ramsey went on to say, the more I studied the narrative of Acts, the more I learned year after year about Greco-Roman society, I, the more I understood, and then quote, you may press the words of Luke in a degree beyond any other historians, and they stand the keenest scrutiny and the hardest treatment. That's what Dr. Luke has given us. I picture him sitting in med school, no idea what God was going to do with him and through his life and where God was going to take him and who God was going to connect him with and what stories God was going to show him and what God was going to do through his pen. But because of Dr. Luke, we have this reliable and thorough and trustworthy account of 60 of the most important years that have ever happened on the planet. And you can trust these words. That, in fact, brings us to the second thing we want to consider, which is after the back cover and you consider who wrote the book, you open to the front and you read the introduction so that you can get, why was this book written? Why was Acts written? To get that, you have to read the introduction to Acts. But here's the odd thing. The introduction to Acts is actually not in Acts. The introduction to Acts is actually in Luke, the gospel according to Luke. Now, here's why. Every single commentary I read, every biblical scholar has made the same point on this, which is that Luke and Acts were meant to be joined together as sort of one work with two volumes. They're to be connected. So don't think of it so much as two separate works as one work with volume one and volume two. Don't think of it as two movies, but as two episodes within the same show. Right? That's what Luke and Acts is. And you can see that right in the introduction. Hear it again. Verse 1 says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until he was taken up. So what's Luke doing from his first words in Acts? He's tying this book to the first one. Right? 
He opens the second one by tying it to the first one. That's his way of saying, Theophilus, I am picking up here exactly where I left off there. Right? I am continuing this story. When you got my first scroll, you read all that Jesus began to do and teach until he went up. And now in this second scroll, Theophilus, I am picking up right there and continuing on. Does that make sense? If, if you read, in fact, how Luke ends and how Acts begins, you can see it best. If you read Luke 24, last chapter, a chapter we love because that's the seven-mile road story. When that chapter winds to a conclusion, you know what you're going to see? You're going to see the resurrected Jesus appearing to the disciples, offering proof that he's alive, then commissioning those apostles as his witnesses, telling them that they are to take the message of forgiveness and repentance to all the nations, beginning in Jerusalem. Then he's going to tell them, but before you do that, wait in Jerusalem till you are clothed on high with power, and then, after all that, Jesus ascends to heaven. Resurrected Jesus, appearing, offering proof, commissioning them as witnesses, telling them to go to the nations, start and stay in Jerusalem till you're clothed with the Holy Spirit, then ascending. That's Luke 24. What's Acts 1? Acts 1, verses 1 to 8, is in verse 3. He presents himself, look, alive to them, offering many proofs, speaking to them for 40 days about the kingdom of God. Acts 4 and 5, he tells them before they're to do anything, stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father which you heard from me. For John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And then what are they to do? They are to be his witnesses. Verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then after verse 8, what happens he ascends. You see, Acts begins as Luke ends because the two are meant to be read together. And when you get these are two volumes connected together, then you can understand that the intro for the first volume serves as the intro for both volumes. And so if you want to know why Acts was written, read Luke 1. Let me just read you the first three verses of Luke 1. It says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, now pay attention to verse 4, so that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. There it is. There's the why in the introduction. Why did Dr. Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, write Luke and write Acts? He wrote it so that the reader might have certainty about the things that they have been taught. He wrote it so that Theophilus might have certainty, he might be sure in his soul of the things he has received and heard and been taught and believed. Theophilus was probably a Roman official of some kind. We say that because in Acts, when Paul greets other Roman officials, he'll do it with this guy named Festus, another guy named Felix. He'll say, most excellent Festus, most excellent Felix. 
And so likewise, you've got a most excellent Theophilus. So maybe this is a Roman official of some kind. And maybe, we don't know exactly what he is, maybe he's a skeptic. He's seeing this, this little Christian movement, 120 people, and suddenly this thing is mushroom cloud exploding throughout the Roman Empire. And maybe he's curious about what this Christian movement is. Or maybe he's a new convert, a young believer. He has come to faith in Jesus, but he's got lots of questions. Or maybe he's a believer who has some serious doubts in his soul. Is this stuff real? You see, whatever the case, don't you feel like you can relate to Theophilus? That some of us in this room are skeptics. That, that we'd go, I, I know lots of you around me are Christians, I'm not really sure. That others of us are new believers, young believers. We believe, but we've got a lot of questions. Others of us can relate and go, we're believers. We know Jesus. We love him, but we've got real doubts in our soul. Whoever you might be then, hear this. Luke wrote this for you. So that in reading this account, the book of Acts, you might be certain about Jesus and his gospel and the things that you have been taught. Can't you relate with Theophilus? Maybe you go, you can hear, you can picture Theophilus thinking to himself, the resurrection. I mean, really, this guy went into the grave and then he came back alive. Is that at best something we tell our children, some hope that we have? But it's not, it's not real like this mic is real, like this, this podium is real. The resurrection, he came back from the dead. Is this thing real? Is it sure? And so to give him certainty, Luke did what? Luke wrote verse 3. Hey, Theophilus, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Theophilus, I'm writing to you this so you can be certain. You can imagine. We, we like to think to ourselves, you know, back then they probably believed in the resurrection because they were more gullible than we are. They didn't have science the way that we do. And so they probably believed this stuff as though you needed a PhD in rocket science to know that dead things don't come back to life. No, they had no category for resurrection either. They had no category whatsoever for resurrection. I read this thick book by this guy named N.T. Wright, and he showed brilliantly. I mean, the thing was 800 pages. I didn't read all of it because I had Eagles games to watch, but still, I read a lot of it. But in this thick book, he showed why Greeks and Jews in that day would have had no category whatsoever for resurrection of the dead. For a man named Jesus coming back in the middle of history from the dead. No category whatsoever. And yet overnight, the entire Jewish religion changed. At least among 120 and then 3,000 and expanding more. You imagine. This one guy named Dick Lucas, a preacher, he said, Can you imagine a conversation that you would have had with an early Christian? A Roman citizen, maybe, had with his neighbor. He says to this Christian man, I hear you're religious. That's excellent. Religion's a great thing. We need more religion everywhere. Where is your temple? And the Christian would have responded, we have no temple. So where do you go to meet with God? We go to Jesus to meet with God. Okay, if you have no temple, then where do your priests do their rituals? Uh, we have no priests. No priests, because now we have one mediator between God and man. His name is Jesus Christ. Okay, you have no priest, then, then who performs your sacrifices? Oh, we, we have no sacrifices. There was a once-for-all sacrifice. His name was Jesus Christ, and therefore we offer no sacrifices. Could you imagine in that day, 
you can understand why Christians back then were called atheists. These people have no religion. They don't have temples. They don't have priests. They don't offer sacrifices. What manner of religion is this? And that would have been the Christian message. This isn't that kind of religion at all. At all. I mean, overnight, you've got people not going to the temple like they used to, not keeping the Sabbath like they used to, not offering sacrifices like they used to, no high priests and priests like they used to. What happened in 30, 33 AD? And Luke says, Theophilus, you can be certain of what happened. There were some scared men, scared for their life, and something happened that every single one of them would go to their death saying, I saw him. Luke says, Acts 3, for 40 days, he presented himself alive to them with many proofs, convincing them. He met with some women they didn't believe. Every single account is met just like you would have met it, with skepticism and unbelief. No one saw Jesus and said, I knew it. You said you were going to come back, and, and I was waiting. No. Every, he met with some women they didn't believe. They're just women. They're out of their mind. Then he met with some disciples, two of them walking a seven-mile road. Then he met with some disciples in a closed room and showed himself to them. Then he met with them on a beach while they were fishing. Then he broke some bread in their eyes. Then he ate some fish so that they could see it. Then he told them, touch here, feel here. Do you hear my heartbeat? Do you feel flesh and bone? I'm not a ghost. And Luke, Pastor Matt Cruz, he said this brilliant thing. He said, Luke is in the same boat you're in and I'm in. Meaning? Luke never saw the resurrected Jesus any more than you did. But Luke had talked to the eyewitnesses and heard their account, and he was certain in his soul, and he writes this so that Theophilus and so that Seven Mile Road can be certain of the things you have been taught, of the things you have received, of the things you have believed. The introduction tells us why this book was written. It was written so that you might be certain. So then our prayerful, confident expectation, hear that, our prayerful, confident expectation is that the Holy Spirit will use our studying, reading, preaching of the book of Acts to give your soul certainty of the things you have been taught, certainty of Jesus and his gospel. That's the who, that's the why, Lastly, what's the what? Acts doesn't have a table of contents, but you do get a feel in the introduction itself of where this book is going and what this book is about. I'm just going to read that first verse one more time. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus, and here's an important word, began, all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commandments through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Many have pointed to that word, began. In, in, without pressing it too far, I think it's fair to say, in some sense, then Luke is what Jesus began to do. The implication then being Acts is what Jesus continued to do. Luke is the account of what Jesus began to do and teach. Acts is the account of what Jesus continued to do and teach. And here's why you need to hear that. Because otherwise, 
we will be tempted to think that Luke is a story about Jesus and Acts is a story about the church. Did you catch that? Otherwise, we will go, Luke is on our shelf to tell us what Jesus did. Acts is in our Bibles to tell us what the apostles did. Right? The way we talk of it is Acts of the Apostles. And yet I want us to consider, while the Acts of the Apostles are certainly present in the book of Acts, I think what Luke intended for us to see is Acts is the continued ministry of Jesus Christ. It's just the location of his ministry has changed. Volume 1 is here's what Jesus did on earth while he was bodily present. Volume 2, here's what Jesus did from heaven by his Holy Spirit through his body on the earth, his people. Volume 1, here's what Jesus did on the earth. Volume 2, here's what Jesus did from heaven through his people. We have an image for the book of Acts. We cleverly titled this series, Acts. That's as clever as we could be. But then we've got this long subtitle in the background, right? And here's the subtitle to this series. Acts of the risen Jesus from heaven by the Holy Spirit through his people on earth in fulfillment of God's promises recorded so that we might have certainty today of the good news that we have received. You are to memorize that subtitle, okay? <laughs> That's what Acts is about. Or if you can't memorize it, essentially, Acts is about Jesus. And it's about what Jesus continued to do from heaven by his spirit through his people. This one sentence alone, Acts 1 and 2, sets Christianity apart from every other worldview and religion. John Stott brilliantly made this observation. Would you just hear his quote? I think it's great. He says, Luke's first two verses, speaking of the first two verses of Acts, are therefore extremely significant. It is not exaggeration to say that they set Christianity apart from all other religions. These regard their founder as having completed his ministry during his lifetime. Luke says, Jesus only began his. That's brilliant. You hear what Stott's saying? Stott's saying, with all respect to every other worldview and religion, when Buddha died, Buddha's ministry in his lifetime ended. When Muhammad died, Muhammad's ministry ended. When Moses died, Moses' ministry ended. But when Jesus died and rose again and ascended to heaven, Stott says his ministry in some sense just began. It's brilliant. Because on the one hand, we are those who say Jesus Christ on the cross bearing the sins of the whole world, dying in our place and for our sins, he shouted with a loud voice, it is finished. And yes, it was. The work for securing salvation, forgiveness of sins for the whole world had been finished. You and I don't need to do anything to add to that work. It's finished. And yet at the same time, on the other hand, the ministry of Jesus was just beginning. Because now, that salvation was to be offered to all peoples, to the ends of the earth, by his Holy Spirit-filled and empowered people, and that work was just beginning. And Acts is the record of that work. Acts is the loud proclamation that Jesus is still at work. It's only that now he's ministering from heaven. 
Now he's not by a mountainside preaching the Sermon on the Mount by himself. Now he's in heaven and filling Peter with the Holy Spirit. It's going to be through Peter's sermon in Acts 2 that Jesus will minister on the earth. Jesus is still ministering, except now it'll be through Philip sitting in a chariot with an Ethiopian eunuch explaining a prophecy from Isaiah. That's how Jesus is going to work now. Jesus is still at work, except now it'll be through Stephen as they're pegging stones at his face and body with his head lifted to the heavens, seeing Jesus at the right hand of heaven, still declaring to the people the things that God had done, his face turning like an angel. Now it'll be through Stephen's martyrdom that Jesus in his ministering on the earth. Jesus is still ministering, but it'll now be through Priscilla and Aquila sitting in their quiet home with this brother Apollos explaining the Bible to him better than he ever understood it. Now Jesus is still ministering, except it'll be through thousands of unnamed normal saints in cities scattered across the Roman Empire by which Jesus will minister from heaven. And Acts would tell us Jesus is still working. And it'll be through ordinary, normal saints in northeast Philadelphia by which Jesus is still advancing the kingdom of God and proclaiming the message of repentance and forgiveness of sins to all peoples, even to the end of the earth. If you want to know from the introduction, where is this book headed? Acts 1.8 tells us, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Would you hear that Acts 1.8 actually gives you the, the table of contents? Because as you keep reading Acts, you know what you're going to find? The Holy Spirit explodes in Jerusalem, Acts 2, and travels throughout the region. And then it goes to Samaria, Acts 8. And then it keeps expanding until you get to Acts chapter 28, and Paul has docked in Rome. The ends of the known earth. And if ever there was a book that then continues its acts. We're in a church planting network called Acts 29. It's actually a brilliant name. Because if ever there was a book that does not finish with its last chapter, it is the book of Acts. One person said it this way, Acts doesn't end with a period. It ends with those three dots, that ellipsis. Right To say that we genuinely are the Acts 29. We are the next part of this story. And the message of Acts is that this gospel is advancing and it is unstoppable. No matter what is pressed up against it, no matter what setbacks, no matter what adversities, no matter what is thrown at it, this thing will not stop because Jesus is in heaven. The Holy Spirit has come to the earth. His people will take this gospel to the ends of the earth and the gates of hell cannot prevail against Jesus and his church. The message of Acts is no matter what you read in the story, this team will win. So now my eagle's illustration and then I'll be done, right? They won the Super Bowl, so you got to give me that. I'm going to stop after this week till August, okay? What made this season so unbelievable, whether you like football or not, is not just that they won, but how they won right? Everybody who's written about it, football fan or not, has said what has made this season so unbelievable is the adversities by which this team won, right? In fact, people who've written about it have written about it as this is the stuff of stories. This is fairy tale. This is Cinderella. They will certainly make a movie out of this season, right? Because why? When you think of what this season felt like, if you followed along, I was just thinking back to this season. 
In week one, their starting cornerback, this defensive player, dislocates his ankle. He's out for several weeks. That same week, their kicker gets out. He's out for the rest of the season. And from then on, you would just get injury after injury to all their most important players. By week three, this running back, on the same play, breaks his arm and tears his ACL. He's out for the rest of the season. Then by week six, their pro bowl tackle, the guy that they had banked all their hopes on, he breaks his, tears his ACL, he's out for the season. That same week, the captain of the defense, he's out for the season. At one point, they had hurt everybody. There's no kicker left on the team. So they grab a guy and they go, you played soccer in high school. You will be our kicker today, right? And that's how the team went. And then injury after injury all the way until Carson Wentz, the MVP, got hurt. Do you remember, it's hard now, knowing what we know, do you remember what the city of Philadelphia felt like the Monday after Carson Wentz? It was like the city had turned into a morgue, the whole city. I, I remember, I was at Cairn University studying for sermon prep, and I remember I was there with Binu. We closed up everything at 11.30 because at 12 o'clock, a press conference was coming on as to what happened to Carson Wentz. And sitting there, we found a good spot with Wi-Fi. We stopped all sermon work and all church work, and we listened. And the first words out of the coach's mouth, torn ACL. I remember reading on Twitter, people in Philadelphia were offering Carson Wentz their ACL. They said, you can have my knee. I don't need it anymore, right? Because all was lost, right? And now, Philadelphia, knowing what you know, wouldn't you go back to a J at Cairn and go, nothing is over. In fact, all this is going to do is make what this story becomes sweeter than you could have possibly imagined. I mean, everybody who's watched anything has said, this story, you couldn't have scripted it better. Even if you don't like football. My wife has not watched football with me. Married 12 years, never watched football. For an hour and a half, we drove around yesterday talking about the Eagles. It was the greatest date night I have ever had in my... I have fallen in love with this girl all over again, right? Why? Because all the story did was make that ultimate end sweeter than it has ever been. And I would go back to the kid at Cairn and say, nothing is going to stop what you want to happen to happen. In fact, all the setbacks do is just bring more glory to the victory. If ever there was a week where Philadelphia is ready to read the book of Acts, this gospel will be opposed from the first page out. This gospel will be opposed and antagonized. As you read through the book of Acts, you're going to read there's going to be scandal and sin within the church, but it won't stop the advance of the gospel. You're going to read that apostles will be imprisoned. Others will be stoned. One of them, the first of them, will be beheaded, but the gospel will not be stopped. Disciples will be prosecuted and persecuted. Missionaries will be mocked. Church planters will have to be lowered at night out of windows to escape and run for their lives out of the city. There will be sorcerers and shipwrecks and snake bites and devils and demons and nothing and nothing and nothing will stop the advance of Jesus and his gospel and his spirit-empowered people doing exactly what Jesus said in Acts 1.8 taking this message of the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. And Acts is written so that Theophilus and Seven Mile Road can be certain that Jesus' Holy Spirit-empowered people will not stop until all peoples in all the nations hear 
of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.